everyone, and welcome to the Power Within You podcast. My name is Mum Tagera, and as well as being your host, I also run my own leadership coaching, facilitation, and course creation business. The reason why I created this podcast was because through the coaching, I realized that everyone I was speaking to had or was suffering from mental health issues, whether it be burnout, stress, anxiety, depression, and more. But what I also realized was that these issues weren't being talked about openly. This podcast is just one step to make mental health accessible to everyone, to bring information to one place, to hear the personal stories of people who come from all walks of life and how they've overcome adversity. The power within your podcast is to hear expert advice, gain resources, make mental health easier to understand and be able to implement positive changes. But most importantly, to know that you're not alone, to know there is support, understanding and love out there for you. I'm delighted to introduce Stephen Shaw to the Power Within You podcast. Stephen is a professor at Delphi University, where he's been teaching, developing curriculum and conducting research on strength-based supports for autistic individuals for over 14 years. Stephen's mission is to empower autistic and neurodivergent people to lead fulfilling and productive lives, using their strengths and to make their success the rule rather than the exception. At first, I thought I was going to be a music teacher, and that's what I studied all through my doctoral coursework. And then after I finished my doctoral coursework in music education, I became more interested in autism and special education and learning in general. So I defected to the School of Education and got my doctorate in special education. And I have a master's in music education. I did all the coursework in music education but didn't go through with the comprehensive exams, and that's when I defected. After 18 months of typical development, I was struck with the regressive autism bomb. And that's what happens to about 30% of us, where we lose functional communication, have meltdowns, withdraw from the environment. In a brief, I became a very autistic little kid. There was so little known about autism in those days that it took my parents a year to find a place for diagnosis. And when they did, the doctors said they had never seen such a sick child and they recommended institutionalization. Fortunately, my parents, like we see ever-increasing numbers of parents in the United Kingdom, the United States, and all around the world, they advocated on my behalf and they convinced the school to take me in about a year. And it was during that year they implemented what we would today refer to as an intensive home-based early intervention program. And this program focused on music, so here comes the music. Music, movement, sensory integration, narration, and imitation. Now in those days, the concept of early intervention didn't even exist, so I'm just using today's terms. And really what it was, my parents were just desperate to reach their child. So what they did is, first they tried to get me to imitate them, and it didn't work. Perhaps due to a difference in mirror neurons, imitation can be hard, especially for young autistic children. Then they flipped it around and they imitated me. Once I did that, I became aware of them in my environment. And I think the key implication is that in order to do meaningful work with an autistic person, you have to one, meet them where they are, and then two, build a trusting relationship. I think that holds true for everybody else as well. And so it begins with the family. At that time, not being able to speak, that could be very frustrating. 
because you can't communicate your needs and your wants. And so what is left except to bite or hit or kick or act out some sort of behavior? And in fact, a leading cause of challenging behaviors is that the person is unable to communicate. What that suggests is the most important thing is that we need to find a reliable means of communication. That's the first step. And it might be through speaking like we're doing right now, but it also might be through an assistive and augmentative communication device, an AAC device. It might mean pointing at pictures, using sign language, typing. I know many non-speaking autistic adults who, unless I knew them from somewhere or somebody told me, I wouldn't know that they're non-speaking when I text with them on the computer. And non-speaking autistic people have the same range of intelligence as everybody else. They're just not neurologically set up to speak. So that's why instead of using the term nonverbal, which we hear most of the time, we're finding the term non-speaking becoming more and more common because it more accurately describes the situation. Music is very helpful because probably beginning with my, what we today call early intervention, and then in middle school becoming so fascinated with music that I got it into my head that I needed to learn how to play all the musical instruments. Well, I didn't learn them all, but I did get it up to about 15. Uh, my main instruments are trombone and piano and recorder. So that led me to study music, to become a, a music teacher, master's, doctorate. And then it, towards the end of my doctoral program, I had finished my courses and now it's time to take comprehensive doctoral exams. And what I found is that I was significantly challenged in analyzing music from the Romantic era. And it was mighty interesting because that's some of my favorite music. So it wasn't a question of not attending to this type of music and not giving it enough attention to properly understand it, but it was something else. So that made me wonder if this autism diagnosis that I had as a kid, which up to that point, if somebody asked me about being autistic, I would have said that, yeah, I was when I was a kid, but now I'm not anymore. And it made me realize that Autism is probably still here, so I should go get a neuropsychological exam, which I did. I always knew that there was something different, and I knew that it came from being autistic as a kid, but I thought of it as just perhaps some sort of residual. It was a, a great realization that this is why things are the way they are, and this is why certain experiences occurred in the past at the university and beforehand, and now that I had this diagnosis, it was almost like somebody getting a late diagnosis, which is pretty common. Someone gets a diagnosis as an adult, and it can go two ways when that happens. Either the person rejects it and they deny it and do everything they can to prove that they're not autistic or whatever condition it might be, or it becomes a great relief and, okay, now we know what it is, we have a name for it, it explains a lot of things, and it opens the doors to accessing uh, the many supports that are available. After graduating from school, which could be as late as the last day that you're age 21, then all of those supports that come from special education law disappear. And we do have a disability law we call Americans with Disabilities Act, 
and that does provide for some support. However, one of the big differences is that in contrast to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, where it's part of the school's job to seek students with disabilities and to properly advocate and provide education, the Americans with Disabilities Act is a self-serve model. So that means it's up to the student to, if it's a college situation, to find the student support office, a disabilities office, whatever they call it, and advocate uh, for themselves and to provide proper documentation. And similarly for work, whereas teachers, part of the training is to look for students who have disabilities, or specifically students who are having more than expected difficulty and then refer them for assessment so that a professional team makes the determination. Supervisors and professors and adults is not part of their lives to look for people with disabilities and think about what accommodations could be made. Most of my work focuses on helping educators understand and support students who are autistic and have other special needs. So that could take the form of teaching courses in autism and special education. We developed a 12-credit autism certificate program in advanced studies in autism. We have students from around the world, probably because it's also available online. It took a while to develop, and it's always evolving, as courses always continue to evolve. One question for you is, firstly, what is the difference between autism and Asperger's? Like, what would be the difference between those two? Uh, a lot of people ask this question, but less and less now because Asperger's syndrome has been removed from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in 2013. And there was a lot of controversy about that. But be that as it may, it's no longer a diagnostic criteria. And what they did is they replaced the subtypes of autism, PDD-NOS, which was pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, but some people considered it as meaning a physician didn't decide because it was a, just a place to put people where the physician wasn't quite sure if it was autism or something else, so we'll just call it PDD, not otherwise specified. And there was Asperger's syndrome and classical autism and others, and people used the terms high and low functioning. And all of that got wiped away and was replaced by autism spectrum. Autism spectrum disorder, although I prefer to use the term autism spectrum difference. You still use ASD as the initials when you do that. So now people who were formally diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome are usually diagnosed with autism needing supports at level one. So now it's just one big spectrum, and the focus is, instead of putting somebody in a category, considering what support they need. Level one is in need of support, and this is the individual who, as a child, like with Asperger's syndrome, began using spoken word for communication at a typical time, but the communication is different, like with Asperger's syndrome and other aspects and given support and that's part of the criterion need support in uh, social communication sensory issues and other aspects Th this is the individual who will go through school will be the nerdy type child so it's like a nerd's nerd so if the nerds think you're a nerd then you have 
at that time Asperger's syndrome, but now it's uh, autism at level one. This is the student who will go to university if they so choose, yet will need support. And many universities, including Adelphi University, has a program specifically for students. It began with Asperger's syndrome, as most of these programs did. And since that's gone now, it's a program for autistic and otherwise neurodivergent individuals. And with that support, then the students can be very successful in school. There's plenty of support that's available. And some support might be providing information in a multi-sensory way. Most education is done the way what we're doing now, and that is by talking, including the visual sense, the kinesthetic sense, learning things through music, not music as a background, but as an integral tool to learning. And most people learn their ABCs, so the English-speaking world learns their ABCs through a song, which happens to be the same melody as Twinkle Little Star or Baba Black Sheep. And that's an example of learning to music and expanding the view of what intelligence is by considering the work of Howard Gardner and the idea of multiple intelligences. Intelligence goes beyond just measuring math or verbal intelligence or doing analogies, but there's other areas that people have intelligences. And what that leads to is the focus on ability. So what we're doing now is we're turning away from a model of disability, thinking of autism as a series of deficits, disorder, and disability, but rather as a set of abilities. And beginning with the question, what can the autistic person do? And that can be expanded to what can the neurodivergent person do? And one aspect of autism that's not often discussed is the extremely widely varying skill set. And what that translates to is the things we're good at, we're incredibly good at, and the things we're not so good at, we may need a lot of support. For example, at four years of age, my parents found me taking apart a watch with a sharp knife. So I'd pop open the back, remove the motor, extract a few gears, spin them around, and then put it all back together again, and the watch still worked, and there were no pieces left over. So one question to ask is, how could I be so good at taking apart watches and not even using the right tools? And you need a certain type of motor control for that. It's called fine motor control. So fine motor control doing really well at this end. So why was it like it is with so many autistic students? Why was I such a disaster when it came to penmanship? So one of the worst things I could experience in school other than bullying would be to walk into a room with a paragraph on the board because it meant we were probably going to have to write, copy it down. And so by the end of the period, Everybody else had finished and gone to recess and had only gotten through a few words. And you need fine motor control to take apart to write as well. So why does it fail in this instance, but it works so well in another? And there's some interesting neurological explanations that you can get from your favorite occupational therapist. But what this is also an example of is the fine lines of demarcation that we often see between the abilities that autism brings and the very real disabilities that come with being autistic as well. So it's this widely varying skill set. If people with autism have different varying skill sets, have difficulties with 
some things, not with others. Um, how is it that you can like tailor, like do these tools and techniques have to be tailored to that specific person rather than applied on a generic basis? Do you have to work with that individual on a one-to-one -one more? For me, they didn't. these things didn't exist then, but had I been given a typewriter, for example, or a keyboard, it probably would have worked out much better because I can type much faster than I can write. And there's many autistic people in this situation. Other autistic people may need to be given a copy of lecture notes because writing is so difficult and so much effort and thought has to be put into the physical act of writing that there isn't anything left. So what can we do to help this person? We could perhaps provide a copy of the lecture notes if they exist. I always provide a copy of my PowerPoints, my slide decks when I teach. So that helps. More formalized procedures might include using a guided listening worksheet, a closed procedure worksheet. So what that is, say you're giving a lecture and students are taking notes. You'll have some students who are taking notes, like the traditional way that students do. You may have some students with a guided listening worksheet where key sentences are written down, but there's blanks that appear here and there. And the student writes in the key word for that sentence to get the information. There may be yet other students who have, you might say, an enhanced guided listening worksheet. And what that would be is a list of words. All the words that they will use are listed as a sort of vocabulary key, maybe at the top of the sheet because it can be easier to look at a word and recognize what you need instead of having to think of that word. And all of these students might be in the same class, and that's what's referred to as differentiated instruction. The way society is set up has led people to believe that autism is mostly a male condition. And you hear ratios of four to one, for example. But really what it is is one, societal expectations between genders. So if we think of a classroom, uh, the girl who's quiet, and we can generalize that, the woman who's quiet in a room and keeping to themselves, what do we say about that woman? We say that woman is shy and we don't give it a second thought. We move on. The boy who behaves in the same manner, we won't necessarily say they're autistic, but it will definitely be noticed. So in situations like that, Women, uh, females, are usually better at masking in the first place. And plus, they tend to be better at social interaction, so there's a bit of a reserve for them. So get in that way, autism gets missed. So what it means is that we're beginning to see more research being done on what autism looks like in women and how we can provide support. And we see this because we can see that women are missed in all the people I know, women who I know who are autistic, and they have a whole alphabet soup of misdiagnoses. And it isn't until midlife sometimes that they get diagnosed. Some of them include bipolar, oppositional defiance disorder, various other types of depression, all kinds of things. So it really makes a mess out of these women's lives. Often we see a suicide and mental health is getting much more noticed now. And that's important because 
part of the reason we know that is the research has been done, and this is an, another area of my work, the, the research piece. And that is some years ago, a colleague and I decided we'd like to look into medical issues facing autistic people. And that could begin by researching to learn what is the most challenging healthcare issue facing autistic people. So we decided that number one, it would probably be best to ask autistic people and not medical providers as to what they think might be the issue. And then number two, while we're at it, we should involve the autistic community in the research in a meaningful and authentic way. So using a community-based participatory research is the fancy term for that. And so what we did is we proposed for a study that would do just that to the Patient Care Outcome Research Institute to study, number one, this question, and then two, also to study engagement. So it was very much like a grant, but they call it a project. So there's two halves to this project. The first half is to meaningfully engage autistic people in research. So what that meant is that we first set up a lead team. So my colleague and I, we became the team, which meant that the team was half autistic and half non-autistic, just to show that autistic people can also be inclusive of non-autistic And then we assembled a paid community council to help guide us in our research. And it was the community council that guided the question, guided the research. And so we had a couple of conferences, surveys that were sent out, discussion groups, focus groups. And we asked this very question, what is the most challenging healthcare issue we face? And what came to the top was mental health support. And at the same time, unbeknownst to us, the group Autistica in the UK was doing similar research. And I think there was one being done in Australia too. So nobody knew what the other person was doing or the other group was doing. And we all came up with the same answer. And that was access to mental health support. And it was this community council made up of mostly autistic people. So uh, that helped us come up with the answer. So one side was the research, the scientific piece, and the other side, it was a two-year grant, a $250,000 grant, was how can we improve engagement in a meaningful way? And in doing so, we developed a compensation engagement guide that put into writing what we can do in terms of communication, and in terms of considerations, in terms of competence, for example, assuming competence, which is a strength-based approach. So assume the person is competent, and then our job is to find a way to help that person engage in their competencies. So that can take the place of, for example, assuming the person can communicate and understands what's being said. And then we need to figure out a way in order to make that happen. And we see this happening, for example, in team meetings, where we have a group of educators all gathered together to advocate for and hammer out an educational program. And there's a review of how the student does, and maybe the student is there too. And it may be a student who is more significantly affected, maybe has difficulty communicating, 
and they're off in the corner doing their own thing, maybe with a power professional, maybe not. And the way these meetings go is they tend to be very negative. These are all the things that the person cannot do. And imagine sitting through a meeting where most of it is talking about what you can't do, and then nobody understands why the student has a meltdown and has to be taken out of the room. So it's changing things like that. And so we completed our work, and the community council, we kept it together as a group and would occasionally answer various questions. And then we got involved in a $9.2 million grant focused on suicide prevention, because that's one of the leading causes of death in autistic people. And so we've just finished the first year of our grant, which was more focused on organizing things and beginning to train practitioners to understand autism and then to provide one of two interventions, brief interventions. And as we go through our study, we'll learn which one works better. One may work better than the other. Probably what we'll find is there'll be certain subtypes where one intervention works better and another subtype or more than one subtype where another one works better. Do do things like therapies, like, you know, uh, like you said, talking helps, but do any like CBT and psychoanalysis, things like that, does that have a place as an intervention for for people with autism or, or suffering with mental health issues from autism? Yeah, it depends. And that's an important distinction. Because if you think about all the challenges that autistic people face in life, if the non-autistic population face those same challenges, what would the rate of mental health issues be? And how close would it be as it is for autism? So that's an interesting thought experiment. You can't really do that experiment, but it is interesting to think about. We've got another four years, and with proper knowledge, psychoanalysis, as long as the psychoanalyst is not trying to root out the cause of autism as something that bad that the parents did, and addressing it as what might be a psychological issue that's being caused by that person's experiences as an autistic person, then CBT could work, mindfulness-based training can work, and in fact, we're also working on another grant which looks at mindfulness-based training versus CBT. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode with Stephen. I look forward to seeing you next week.